let's talk a bit about dodging bullets in our third segment. Starting with the fact that the analysis is in, it turns out the Earth dodged a bullet in 2012. Apparently a giant solar eruption that took place on July 23rd, two years ago, would have sent the Earth back to the 19th century if it had happened just one week earlier. One week earlier, and this solar eruption would have been twice as bad as the 1989 solar storm that knocked out power across Quebec. It's believed that this would have been comparable to the 1859 Carrington event, which we talked about on this program. Yes, these giant solar flares, which send X-rays and UV radiation toward the Earth, are followed by energetic particles of electrons and protons. And, well, when they happen and they hit our Earth's magnetic field they cause currents to be generated. With all of our electronic society of today with wires all over the surface of the planet, well, there's going to be hell to pay when the next one hits. And apparently there's a 12% chance of a superstorm the size of the Carrington event hitting the Earth in the next 10 years, according to physicist Pete Riley, who published a paper in the journal Space Weather earlier this year. Oof. And studies down in the Antarctic shows that uh, that a glacier collapse is going to happen. People have been studying the West Antarctic ice sheet since 1973, and there's increasing concern that if it should bust and slide off into the sea and then melt, well, it could raise the level of our oceans by 1.2 meters. Now, some estimates are saying that we could get a four-feet rise over the next 200 years from this ice sheet, but as we've seen... The feedback loops and some of these items make them take place shockingly quickly. Let's hope we get a break there. Let's hope we catch a break here uh, in Northern California with all this talk about an El Nino year coming this fall and winter. Considering the drought we've been having for the past couple years, on the one hand, that would be quite welcome. On the other hand, this has a way of causing nasty flooding. Thanks to a great deal of political chicanery, in our state capital, they built a lot of houses and development out in the Natomas Basin after alleging falsely that we had adequate flood control out there. Turned out, we didn't. And back in 2008, when federal authorities revoked the area's alleged 100-year flood protection rating and then set out to uh, improve the levee system, which they did over 42 miles worth of levees, well, uh, they did sort of curtail the rampant development going on out there, but now some folks are thinking it's time to go pedal to the metal. We have to agree with the piece written for the Bee by Bruce Myman, noting that building again in Atomas is too risky. And we've lamented this mania that communities have in California, which seems to be based on real estate speculation that... Uh, well, everyone's salivating over the prospect of new neighborhoods, new strip malls, sales commissions, property taxes... As Mr. Myman points out, in which he quotes Ian Adams, a policy analyst uh, for the R Street Institute, a libertarian think tank, who noted that overhauling levies makes sense for existing residents, but not as a basis for further development. We would remind you that after New Orleans, Sacramento, which sits at the confluence of the Sacramento and American rivers, is the nation's most flood-prone city. And the prospect of some superstorms coming in off the Pacific during an El Nino year. Ooh. Some, interesting, some interesting stats in the piece also about, um, about insurance data. They note that over the life of a 30-year mortgage, those homes out in Natomas 
have a 26% chance of flooding. And in a free market, insuring a $300,000 home in Natomas should cost about $21,000 annually. The cost under the federal government's National Flood Insurance Program is $353 annually, which you have to look at as a massive transfer of risk from a small percentage of homeowners onto the backs of the U.S. taxpayer. Anyway, pretty good piece by Bruce Myman. I hope you look it up and read the whole thing in its entirety. This is, this is yet another example of economic distortions caused by, well, crazy interference with what should be market forces. And should we be worried about um, tax inversions? Well, yes, we should. The tax inversion is the, the new phrase that's being bandied about, uh, which describes what happens when U.S. companies reorganize as foreign firms to avoid paying U.S. taxes. They're calling that tax inversion. It's an increasingly popular loophole that is spelling disaster for corporate tax revenue and for the IRS and for the rest of us that have to make up the deficit. As the Wall Street Journal describes it, in an inversion, a U.S. firm acquires a much smaller company based in a tax-friendly country like Ireland, but the deal is structured so that the foreign minnow swallows the domestic whale. The U.S. company, now headquartered overseas, can then avoid paying corporate taxes on foreign earnings. Of course, business interests are claiming that the reason this is going on is because U.S. corporate tax rates are too high. They're the highest in the Western world. Although they freely admit that the companies don't actually pay that tax rate. It's not a new game. Multinational corporations have been playing this for generations, and they're pretty good at it now. The question is, are we going to continue to let them do so? Since they purchase most of our politicians in this country, I suspect the answer to that is yes. And in other threat assessments, how about uh, the militarization of America's police? That's a matter of some concern. A wonderfully concise briefing in the week, August 1st issue, I think should be read by everyone hearing uh, my voice right now. To excerpt from it, it notes that many small-town police departments now boast the same weaponry once wielded by U.S. military units in Afghanistan, including tanks with 360-degree rotating turrets, battering rams, and automatic weapons. The piece notes that every day, SWAT teams connected to local police conduct 124 paramilitary-style raids in the U.S. And it gets worse. Most raids by SWAT teams are conducted against suspected drug dealers. But they've also been deployed against a private poker game, a gay bar in Atlanta, a New Haven, Connecticut bar suspected of serving minors, and even people suspected of credit card fraud. Now, the first SWAT team was created by the LAPD in 1967 and was reserved for the most extreme circumstances, riots, hostage scenarios, and an active shooter or sniper situation. But thanks to our war on drugs, coupled with a sense of danger promoted by tragedies like Columbine and 9-11, police departments have been encouraged, even in small towns and rural areas, to create special units equipped and trained for worst-case scenarios. And the Department of Homeland Security has provided $35 billion to our local police throughout the country to help buy weapons for the war on terror. It's good for the Pentagon, too. They've offloaded $4.2 billion in surplus armored vehicles, rifles, and equipment to police departments. Magazine posed the question, are SWAT tactics an overreaction? And they replied, in many cases, yes. Of those 124 SWAT raids conducted daily, 7% meet the original LAPD criteria. About 62% of the raids are mounted to conduct drug searches, 
many of them based on tips from unreliable informants. Most are undertaken to investigate non-violent offenses. In Orlando, Florida, in 2010, for example, a heavily armed SWAT team raided nine barber shops and arrested 34 people for, and I'm not making this up, barbering without a license. In 2011, an Arizona paramilitary police unit riding in military vehicles, including a tank driven by special deputy and movie star Steven Seagal, drove straight into the living room of an unarmed man suspected, suspected of staging cockfights. And in the midst of these adrenaline-fueled overreactions, uh, about 300 dogs have been shot. Apparently, if they growl or bark at these armed men entering the facilities, they're often dealt with by being summarily executed. Yes, apparently a miniature dachshund made the mistake of growling at a police officer during one SWAT operation, and he shot it dead. Have things gotten a little out of control here? All right, we got to end on something a little nicer than all this. All right, how about this? We no sooner uh, got done with our program last week, talking to Jay Barbary about his excellent book on Neil Armstrong, when I opened up the pages of the uh, Astronomy magazine, which I just purchased, and there it was on page 22, How One Small Step Became a Giant Leap, a description by Jay Barbary of the Moon Landing with some excellent pictures. Mr. Barbary was also interviewed by our pal Matt Kaplan over at Planetary Radio earlier this week, so... uh we feel we got him pretty well covered. And this correspondent did go to the USS Hornet last Saturday, which is parked in Alameda, to hear Buzz Aldrin talk about uh, his trip to the moon and how he thinks we ought to go to Mars. And I'd love to talk about that at greater length, but unfortunately, we are out of time. And in the one minute we have left, I want to note my approval of the fact that the Library of Congress last Tuesday announced that Billy Joel will receive the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. It's an award meant to honor living musical artists whose lifetime contributions in the field of popular song exemplify the standard of excellence associated with George and Ira Gershwin. The Librarian of Congress, James Billington, said, Billy Joel is a storyteller of the highest order. There's an intimacy to his songwriting that bridges the gap between the listener and the worlds he shares through his music. When you listen to a Billy Joel song, you know about the people and the place and what happened there. I gotta find his crack dealer. Previous winners of the Gershwin Prize include Paul Simon, Stevie Wonder, Paul McCartney, Carole King, and the duo of Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Although Mr. Merlin does not share my extremely high opinion of the great Billy Joel, we're gonna go out with one of his better tunes just the same. This program was produced by Mr. Edward McMillan, who may just have to grit his teeth through Big Man on Mulberry Street. Our thanks to Mr. Will Durst, who himself ought to get an award from the Library of Congress. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and we will see you next week at the same time. And I say in closing what I should say every once in a while, which is thanks for listening. Get myself into